0: Father, I thank you for all those who have gathered here this day. I see visitors, I see friends, I see community, I see family. Lord, and I, I pray that you would bless each and every one here today. Uh, Lord, I, I confess uh, before you and before these people, Lord, in prayer, uh, that that when I see such a diverse crowd and people from different walks of life and going through different things, I feel so inadequate. Uh, to be able to speak to a crowd uh, so diverse. And so, so, Lord, I come to you now before this message and, 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 Lord, confess my feebleness, my frailty, my inadequacy at being able to address such a fine crowd as this. And I pray, Lord, that you would move supernaturally uh, through, through, through it all to address each and every one here today with something to take home with something to work on, above all, Lord, with repentance and faith that we would come to you here this day realizing, uh, Lord, not just the inadequacy of a speaker to talk, but uh, collectively our inadequacies as we stand before you most deeply to make ourselves righteous and clean. We need you to cleanse us. We, We need you to transform us. We need you to open our eyes to see how much we actually need you. And Lord, I pray that you would do that here and through this message. Above all, Lord, this, this, this message has no power. Uh, it only comes by the power of your word. So, Lord, move through your word. Animate your word. Take the truths of your word as they're presented here and now, Lord, and, and, and use them as you see fit to draw us to yourself. Have your way with us, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. I love love saying that while we're here outside... ...because it is a reminder for us of something that is actually really important... ...that we need to hear. That the church is the people and not, not that building over there. Further, that the church is the people... ...and not the programs that, that, that we might put on as an organization. The church is the people. Even, even further, the church is the people under the, the, the great shepherd, Jesus the Christ. And under, under his word and, and under caring under-shepherds in a local church... ...that are leading us in disciple and worship on mission with the gospel. That's the church, those who have gathered to observe the ordinances of Christ and those who have gathered to celebrate the commands of Christ in the unity of the Spirit who has come to birth the church, to carry the church. As a kid, I I was taught, maybe you were, uh, this little thing, this little do-ditty right here. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up, and here's the people. I stand before you today to offer a correction to that horrible children's lesson. Uh, This is not the church symbolizing the building the steeple open it up here's the people oh no 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 here's the building here's the steeple open it up and here's the church doesn't quite rhyme but it's theologically accurate we are the church those gathered in the name of christ those who come in the spirit those who 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 have gathered here this day who've been washed and regenerated by him we are the church The church is the people, not just any old people, but the church is a redeemed people rescued by the risen Lord. And speaking of the risen Lord, on this special Sunday of Easter, there is a tradition that goes way back and that extends all around the world in many cultures and languages known as the Paschal greeting. On Easter or Resurrection Sunday, saints greet one another not with a hello, what's up, hey. We greet one another not with a, hello, what's up, hey. We greet one another by saying, this is our hello for this Sunday. We say, he is risen. And, and you don't respond when someone says, he is risen, by saying, what's up, man? How's it going? Hey, what's up? No, you respond to this hello on Easter Sunday of he is ris- risen. You respond by saying, he is risen indeed. This is the paschal greeting. All around the world there are people that are, that are offering this. And depending what time zone they are in, maybe they've been offering it for some time already. But all around the world, in various languages, hundreds of languages, the Pashal greeting is being offered. And so let's let's try it out this morning so that I can insert it in the sermon in different places and so that you can get it cracking today as you go on about your way. He is risen. Okay, that was lackluster. He is risen. Anthony Sims, way over there with the sweet bow tie. He is risen. There we go, all right. He is risen, he is risen indeed. What a special greeting that we have to offer on this day and truly what a special day it is to share with you, the Saints of Delray Church and our friends and visitors who have joined us this day. This time last year, we weren't able to do this. We were not able to give the Paschal greeting together. We weren't able to do what we just did and, and, and to respond that way. We weren't able to do that. I, and many of you texted I got a whole bunch of pastel texts last year. He's risen. He's risen indeed. My phone was blowing up. He's risen. He's risen indeed on my phone because last year we weren't able to, to 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 meet like this, and 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 we missed the hearing of our voices like this. This time last year, the world was trying to figure out the brave new world of COVID-19, a severe acute respiratory syndrome that turned into an international pandemic. The first known case went from international to national around the end of January when it was found in the Pacific Northwest and in a matter of days it found its way into the lovely state of California where we find ourselves. And the governor of our, of our state would notoriously uh, you know, uh, issue mandates that he himself, we would see later hypocritically, would break in public only to get busted on camera. But at the beginning of the year, around January, everything was chill. Around February, everything was chill. It was like, oh, COVID 19 or whatever, we're going to be all right, you know, whatever, low level. But by March, tunes had switched and we were under a state of emergency. And politicians were busy around this time signaling. Virtue signaling, that is, who, who was handling it bit better than the other? You know, the president says this, a governor says this, uh, a mayor says this, and so on and so forth, and people began virtue signaling over who handled it the best, you know, and, and, and whose approach was the best, and, and whether or not you should do it this way or that way, and all of a sudden, people began dividing and fighting with each other around the pandemic. The economy then takes a huge hit. People start panic buying, greedy hoarders, and probably there's still some of you that got a whole bunch of stuff in your garage. You got a bunch of two-ply rolls left over that maybe you, Dwight, shrewded into one-ply rolls to keep those. The panic set in and, you know, you, you start freaking out and, and, and a lo- whole lot of sinful tendencies started coming out in people. Worse than hoarding, worse than hoarding, which made the year of 2020 into a rough ride. No doubt relationships, families, communities, even churches will have years of healing ahead. Thankfully, the healing has begun. And in the case of the church, divine pruning and discipline from the Lord has come by His grace to get His people to a place of health. We have a long way, but we've come some way. Think about it. This time last year, we were closing everything down. Today, here we are, we are gathered. The sun is shining. We have a better grasp on things epidemiologically we have a better understanding of things. We've, we've managed to have our, 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 our last physical corporate gathering around this time last year. and We didn't know what was going on. We've, we've come some way now, a, a, a year removed. So let's begin this Easter by looking back on how God has carried us this last year. So around this time last year, we had our last physical corporate gathering. We actually had a baptism, if you recall. This time last year, we had a, a baptism. It was truly wonderful. I get goosebumps thinking about how God was on the move through the panic of the pandemic for his praise. Seeing, seeing one who came forward and said, I, I want to get baptized, and everything was shutting down. We said, we gotta, we got to get this baptism in before everything gets shut down. And we had a, a baptism service. In fact, our our beloved Marlon, Pastor Marlin, turned... Turn missionary Marlin actually led that baptism service and God was in full control. The Lord knew what he was doing. And in full circle, now a year removed. Actually, next Sunday we are having baptisms next Sunday. And, and this Sunday is our, our our last week with our beloved Marlin as he sets out into the mission field. Look at what God did in 2020. How he used a pandemic and panic for preparation for a missionary and, and family to go into the field. How, how he snuck in just before everything closed down. Baptism to the, to the praise of his glory that we would see the, the symbol of sinners washed. 2020, the church never closed. 2020, God never stopped doing his thing. We went to live streaming. We, we had Easter this time last year. We just live streamed out a resource for Resurrection Sunday and for a couple of months afterwards, we just relied on online resources to stay connected and encourage one another for mission. Then we transitioned back inside with masks and we encouraged our, our church to follow the CDC regulations and to do so with a good attitude, modeling joy and, and eagerness to put others before ourselves as a light to the dark world as an example to the the panic of the world, rather than engaging in the political virtue signaling all around us and rather than separating others uh, along and rather than playing into the confusion, our church leaders here at Delray called us to rally together, serving others, putting others before ourselves and coming in the unity of God's word for the equipping of the saints, for the proclamation of the gospel. And praise God, so many responded with great joy, humility and eagerness. Praise God. And then things took a a turn in those months and and our indoor gathering hit with governmental regulations that sought to re-shut down things as people were trying to figure out what was going on amidst uh, seeming spikes. And, and, And of course, you know, what happened? There was all sorts of polarized politicization and virtue signaling over who's handling it right and who's not and state leaders and media outlets. Oh, the media outlets, they were ever so helpful the last couple of years, weren't they? worsening the divides of the day, selfishly and sadistically doing so our media outlets for their own ratings. And so we as believers, we prayerfully offered a modest and humble descent, you might say, by simply moving from, okay, we closed inside and we just came outside. And we've been outside and it's been great and God has been good. We haven't seen rain. We've had some cold weeks. Good Friday was a little cold, but, you know, whatever. First world problems. You know, here we are. We're outside. We're, we're honoring the state. We're being a good example. We're coming joyfully. We're putting others first. And above all, what are we doing, brothers and sisters? We're honoring our Lord who has given us this great ordinance that we would meet on Sunday. ...in commemoration of the one who was risen. And on this day, the historic day, that, 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 that goes back to that very day... ...we gather and we say this year, because we couldn't last year, He is risen. Y'all missed your cue. He is risen. So here we are, we're still on a journey, we're able to meet this year, but you know, we still got a ways to go and I stand here on yet another Lord's Day and I stand here with the same word that is preached to you on any given Sunday, not any given Sunday, but every Sunday, I give you this word every given Sunday, it is the word of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the triune God who reconciles undeserving and undesiring sinners to himself by his grace, in his love, his unconditional love. And, and, and here we are today and we are, we're here today in His love and we're here today by His grace and truth be told we don't deserve to be here and yet we're here by His grace. Further, truth be told, we don't deserve his love and yet he continues to forgive us and he continues to love us in his faithfulness, calling us to himself for his glory and the salvation of his people, the salvation that is given to us by faith, a faith that is a gift that comes from God that no man may boast, a a faith that actually justifies us from our sin and places us in the body of Christ and is manifest in the gathering of the local church and the administration of Christ and his ordinances under his shepherds for the praise of his name. So together we come today in obedience to him, our savior, our chief shepherd who calls us to gather as a church according to his word. And we do our best and we keep safe and we spread out and we have mass and in our heart is great joy in all of this. We will not reflect the culture in its bitterness and dividedness. We come and we say, thank you, Lord. We don't deserve to be here. Thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. And we join our hearts in song and our mouths in proclamation of the gospel, and our relationships in humble submission, and our minds in study, and our hands in, in giving and in service, and our, our knees in, in, in bowing to intercede for those who are hurting, for those who are broken. And we cry out and we pray, O oh Lord, be with those who are hurting and broken. O oh Lord, come to those who are lost. O oh Lord, raise up a revival among us in the city of Los Angeles. O oh Lord, move and, and save. And O oh Lord, empower your church. By God's providence, regeneration will come. And by the resurrection power, we will move from worship to walking his truths out in our lives into this polarized post-Rona world that is united over very little and divided over very much. Not just divided over very much, but combative over very much. The Rona is just the surface of it all. And even that, it's really, it's just the surface. There's so much more. Even that, there's so much more behind it. It's so much deeper than that. It's it's not actually about any of that. What what has come out in 2019 and 2020, that was already in there. If you've been listening to my preaching in the last year or so, I've likened this whole thing to just a tube of toothpaste. 2020 might have squeezed us, but whatever was in there was in there before 2020, and it came out. They're deeper things that God is squeezing out of his people... ...in order to prune his church, in order to sanctify his people... ...in order to manifest among us our desperate need for his resurrection power... ...because left to ourselves we have the phenomenon of the Rona... ...and the pandemic and the confusion that goes along with it. And so we give thanks to God on a Sunday that he was risen on a Sunday. And I say to you church, he is risen... Praise be to the risen one. The title of my message today is The Rona and the Resurrection. And my aim in this sermon is to point us to the risen one above the madness of our culture over COVID and politics and current affairs. And let's get real over the mess of our own hearts within and our lives without. The honest to God truth is that it's easy to talk about the divided culture. The honest god truth is that it's easy to talk about divisive people and mistaken news and greedy politicians and racist powers and sexual deviance and false religions. It's easy to talk about those things. But if we are honest, the honest god truth is that we are plagued by such things and even more. We are divided in our own hearts. We are mistaken on things that we think that we know. We are given to false religion and idolatry. Hatred brews within our hearts. We, we wrestle with divisiveness towards one another, anger, selfishness, and greed within. Oh, speaking of greed, oh, it grips us and subversively it tricks us to rationalize our coveting and hoarding and pursuit of comfort and putting ourselves first instead of others. I think about what our culture did in 2020 with food. I'll never forget the empty shelves. I'll never forget the, the eerie ghost town feel that I had walking through the, the market that normally was quite full and calling my wife and saying the meat is gone. The tissue is gone. The inability to find something as, as basic as, as meat and tissue. Look at what we did with tissue. Look at what we did with toilet paper and tell me we don't have a problem as a culture. Earlier I, I sort of uh, uh, turned it into a verb and I said that we Dwight schrute the toilet paper. The character Dwight Schrute wasn't simply turning two-ply toilet paper into one-ply because the government made him do it, or because he was tricked by the fake news, or because of his identity politic at Dunder Mifflin or whatever. Of course it was a comedy sitcom, and of course it was a pre-COVID episode that was capturing the greed that is already in the tube that when squeezed in a year like the one that we had comes out. If you saw that sitcom, you no doubt laughed watching Dwight take the two-ply and spin it into one-ply to save a buck. And that said, we admit that it was funny because it was true. It was funny because it was true. That's often why things are, are funny in the sitcoms. We laugh at it, we go, oh, <laughs> because we relate. We know people like that. We're like that. And with that, we ought to know That we are in need. We are in need of someone who will help us. We are in need more deeply of someone who will heal us. We need someone even more deeply to save us. After all, our greed, our dysfunction, our divisiveness is no sitcom laughing matter. It's real life, and this real life is taking place before the eyes of a real God to whom we must give an account with the life that he has given us. And so we need salvation. Salvation not merely from ourselves, but more profoundly before the holy God to whom we stand with the life that he has given us and and in light of his justice that will not be thwarted. You know, many people deem themselves good or spiritual and they do so by way of comparison, they look at other people, it's a really convenient tactic to do to tell oneself, you know, I'm not as bad as so and so. You could go to your 10 year reunion, 20 year reunion, 30 year reunion, look at other people and say I'm not as bad as so and so, you know, I'm better than so and so and, and with that there is this assumption that God is in, a, in heaven and his justice is somehow taking place on a curve. Not so. I mean, maybe you had a math teacher who did something like that, who averaged up the scores or whatever and graded on a curve, but that's not how it works in court. A court does not line up murderers and then average out all the murderers and all the people that they have killed and said, okay, all of you who have killed less than 10 people, you guys are good to go. You're good citizens. You're good people. Less than 10 over here. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Morality doesn't take place on a curve. It doesn't work that way in a human court, let alone does it work that way in the divine court of heaven. God's courtroom will not be bribed or manipulated. That's a sobering reality. The Rona is the least of our concerns. At least it should be. And in light of this, I come to you today to tell you about the justice of God that has been satisfied in the risen Lord for his people. I come today not merely to tell you, but I come today in Jesus' name to invite you to come to him, not just to come to him and stand there before him, but to bow down and to worship him. He is alive. He is risen. We come in worship today seeking the risen Lord to bring repentance among us. We come, we come today crying out, now, now even, brothers and sisters, pray in your hearts, oh Lord, draw people to yourself through this. We come today to be transformed by him and, and, and specifically in this context in which we find ourselves to refocus from politics and panic and to be pointed to the triune God of creation who is sovereign over all and Lord over all. And in order to do this, we come not to hear the message of a mortal man, Matt Jones in this case. I stand before you today, A mortal man with nothing, nothing. I have nothing. But I have the immortal word of God. I have his inspired word. I have the truths that come from his word to declare to you today. And that said, would you open a physical copy of the Bible, of the word of God? If you don't have a physical copy in book form, would you take out your phones? Would you pull up an app? Would you open it up and find your way to the gospel of John and find your way into the first chapter? In today's message, I want to take you from the beginning of the gospel of John to the end of the Gospel of John. In our Good Friday service, I took you from the beginning and I took you to the end. It's important to have all of this context in mind so that we can see what God is doing in history so that we can marvel at the reality of this thing that is known as Easter in our culture. Much of my time will be spent today in this message reflecting on 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 the context of it, and at the very end we'll hit resurrection. It's so important for us to have context in mind, for us to see these things, and so the opening of John's Gospel, it it gives us a a well-orbed context. It begins by giving you a context of the God who is, and, and situating the story of Easter, of resurrection, and the story of creation, the story of paradise. So the first point on your outline is about paradise, and paradise will help us to understand panic, panic and paradise. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read the text together. We read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John describes creation. His account is actually mirroring the first book of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis, ...which gives you the account of creation, It begins with the same wording about beginning, in the beginning. That's how Genesis begins, that's how this gospel account begins... ...so that you understand the God of creation is the God in the story of the Christ... ...the God in the flesh of the Jesus of Nazareth, specifically the eternal Son in fleshed, And in him is life and in him is light, John says... Life and light, that is the language of the book of Genesis. Life and light, those belong uh, exclusively to the creator God that he gives on loan to us that we might experience life and light, but they, they belong to him exclusively. They are his, he is life, he is light, the God of creation. And who is this God of creation? John explains in his account, the scriptures bear witness that the God of creation is father, son, and spirit. There is one God who eternally dwells in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. This one God exists in this perfect harmony, this perfect unity in himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. This one God brings the creation about. He brings the creation about. He gives life and he gives light to the creation. And he gives his love, the love that the Father, Son, and Spirit enjoy among themselves he gives to the creation. He makes beings, humans, to reflect his image, to know him, to live for him, and to love him. And those beings, it's a very sad story in the book of Genesis. They move from paradise into peril. God gives them his love and they reject it. It's a story of unrequited love. I know there are people listening to me today. You've had your hearts ripped out by people. Some of you have been abandoned by parents, loved ones, spouses. You've had children rip your hearts out. You know what it is to experience unrequited love. And we get just a taste, because we are sinful, of what it is for the holy God who is without sin, whose creation it is, who he's given life to, what it is when humanity rebels against him. And with that rebellion comes panic. So the panic of 2020, the panic of 2019, even before with riots and what have you, the panic that is a reality in human history, that panic goes back to the very beginning, post-paradise, when paradise is lost. We read in the book of Genesis about how the first man and the first woman, uh, when they sin, when they rebel against God, when they reject his love, how they panic, what do they do? They hide. They hide. They run from the light into the darkness, and in grace, God comes to them, and he covers them. He covers them. There is a life that is lost, animal life is lost, and they are clothed, they are covered. He covers them, he covers them, and he promises to them, I I am gonna beat the darkness. I am going to deliver you, which was a gracious thing. They didn't have it coming. They had rebelled against the giver of life, and he responds to them by covering their guilt and their shame, and, and he responds by promising them that he is going to overthrow the darkness. Now sadly, in the darkness, Our mother Eve, our father Adam, don't quite understand this in the book of Genesis, nor do their children and their children's children, all the way down to you and I. We are still in the darkness, and we still don't get it. Everything was great. Paradise was lost. Darkness came. The creation now is in need of light. And God promised, one day I'll send one through the woman who will overthrow the darkness. God promised one day light will shine again. And you follow that storyline for the book of Genesis all the way up to the Gospel of John here, as you're following that storyline in the canonical text, as you're looking back at ancient history, you follow that storyline, you follow that promise, and behold, Jesus comes, the eternal Son, God incarnate. What does it say in verse 14? Look at verse 14 in the text He became flesh. The Word, who is God, who is with God, He's with God, for the Son is with the Father and the Spirit. He is God, for there is one God in three persons, becomes flesh, the Son. He becomes a man. As a man, he brings light to humanity. As a man in the flesh, he brings light into physical creation, into the darkness. Look at the text, verse 5, where we left off. We read, what? And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness was so eager to humbly respond and ask God for his love. And they all said, sorry, no. And the darkness, what? Did not comprehend it. Darkness is the antithesis of light. Creation, creation, creation is the antithesis of chaos. Hate, the antithesis of love. The God who is love and light, who creates the creation to reflect his love and his light, is met with sin. Sin brings in darkness and chaos. Paradise turns from peace to panic. Life ebbs out and death comes. In fact, death has so pervaded our world that we ourselves are described as being born into sin and born dead spiritually. You see, we are not just sinners because we have sinned, but more deeply, we sin because we are sinners. We're actually born this way, the scriptures teach us. We are born spiritually dead. We enter into the world sinners. As I like to say, vipers and diapers. We are born sinners. And this this is why, if you don't believe this, we have volunteer slots in Kids Church for you. We have volunteers needed in the nursery. You take two kids and you put a toy in between them. They, oh, you go first. Oh, no, no, no. You, know, you, you have it. No, Oh, no, you have it. Right? They start, mine, mine. Those of you who are parents, you know, some of the first words that come out of their mouths are, mine, no, right? Born, we're born with this. We're born a mess. We're born a hot mess. We're born spiritually dead, the scriptures explain. And because of this, we need a new birth within. A birth of light. That's the language of John, light. A birth of light to open our eyes from the darkness and ultimately to rid ourselves of the, of the need to try and cover ourselves. Of the need to, to within try to solve this to be spiritual enough or holy enough or righteous enough or whatever, whatever. Within we're trying to do this but you can't get anything out of it because it's dead. We need something not from within ourselves to save ourselves. We need something outside of ourselves to save ourselves. I often hear people say things like, you know, I'm going to take some time off. I need to find myself. I said, don't do that. I'll save you some time. You don't want to find yourself. Your self is dead. You need new life. And behold, there is one who has come to put new life inside of you that is not there. Behold, one has come to clean the house of your soul. And this is done by the Spirit of God. He brings light within the sinner. He opens our eyes to see our immorality. He brings faith and repentance to us. And it's all a gift. So as Christians, we don't look at other people who maybe aren't Christians and think, oh, we're better than them because we didn't make ourselves Christians. If you made yourself a Christian, you're in big trouble. You're not a Christian. You're just a, a, take your first name, I'd be a Mathian. If I saved myself, I'd just be a Mathian. You need someone else to save you. The Gospel of John, the writings of the New Testament, describe this phenomenon as new birth, being born again. What a fitting phrase. We're born dead, so we need to be born again. This is what Jesus describes in, in, in his preaching ministry. you got the Gospel of John in front of you. you got John 1 in front of you. Look at the text of John 1, verse 9. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him, and he came to his own. And his own did not receive him, but as many received him, them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Verse thirteen: Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but are born what of God? Verse thirteen. You see, John explains salvation as a work that comes from God. It is not by the will of man. It is by the will of God. In John 3, if, if, if you want to turn the page and look at John 3, you'll see in John 3, uh, uh, Jesus is explaining this to a historic figure named Nicodemus, and he tells him that salvation comes to those who are born again of the Spirit. It's new birth, and Jesus says that the new birth, chapter 3, verse 8, is just like the blowing of the wind. The blowing of the wind just blows, and it blows, and he's telling Nicodemus, in other words, that that which is born of the Spirit is of the Spirit, chapter 3, verse 3 and that which is born of the flesh is of the flesh the spirit like the wind blows and he brings new life where he goes the flesh is fallen it brings death and oh the spirit as he blows he brings life he brings life and this is life that we need we're born in sin and so we have death and as a result of the sin that is within our, our our bodies go through a process of disease and death you know 10 out of 10 people die Ten out of ten people die. We are all in a state of death. Our bodies are dying. The universe itself is actually in a a state of entropy where it's running out of usable energy. The whole cosmos is in a state of death. Some of you are dying slower than others. Some of you are dying a little bit faster. Like, wow, this is a really inspiring Easter message. I know, I know, it is. It's really inspiring. We're all dying. Now here's the inspiring part. There is one who has come who has beat death. He is risen. (laughs) Got to stay on your toes. Biological death is a reality, as well, relational and social death are realities as well, aren't they? Our bodies are dying, our relationships are dying, families fall apart. And this explains the panic on this side of paradise, this first point on the outline about panic in paradise, that we're in a state of death biologically, cosmologically, the universe is in a state of running out of usable energy. And socially, we're in a state of death. There's a social death that takes place. This is, this is a real thing, this is a real thing. There's social death, there's straining of relationships. More broadly, there's perpetual and inevitable unjust making of systems by our fallen hands. Wherever fallen humans go, they build cultures and societies that will have artifacts of our fallenness. This is why our courts and our politicians and our powers should not be where we put our trust because they are a hot mess, because they are put together by sinners. This is why social evils like racism, oppression, abortion, human trafficking, I could keep going on and on and on to the break of dawn. This is why humans make a mess out of things. Keep in mind that these social evils have a way of just perpetuating themselves and creating further dysfunction and further death, all the while our bodies are dying and the cosmos is dying and all of it is just spiraling into this panic, this side of paradise. With the coming of COVID, we've really been reminded of this. With all of our technology and and all of our prowess and all of our science and the rest, we realize we are impotent against this reality. Ten out of ten people will always die. We are never going to beat that. We might come up with vaccines for things, but there is no vaccine for death save for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we fight the pandemic. And while we fight the pandemic because we are fallen sinners, we end up fighting each other while we're trying to fight a pandemic. That's a part of the panic. There's polarization, there's politicization, and we find ourselves, we find ourselves being ripped and tossed to and fro. The not so dogmatic among us, we, you, you find yourself watching the news or watching your friends or watching social media, and you're going, what is happening? One friend posts something, your other friends start flying in, people start unfriending each other. You go, what is unhappening? And you watch the news, and one side says, here's what's going on, and the other side says, here's what's going on. And the not-so-dogmatic will humbly say, what is going on? Oh, Lord, help! All of the confusion and the chaos are just symptoms of the darkness. The darkness, according to John chapter 1, is what Jesus came in to shine into. Praise be to God. Jesus came to shine his light into the darkness... He didn't come into the darkness to point his finger and, and, and go, oh, you dumb people in the dark. No, he came to shine his light to get them out of there. And he decided to pass his light to the church so that we would continue shining in this age on behalf of him and in his name. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, listen to the words of Jesus. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket you put it on a lampstand, Jesus said, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the word of Jesus. He is the light. He passed his light to his people. You will be a city on a hill. You will be a light that the world cannot contain. Your good works will be carried to the darkest places of the world. And literally that took place to Jesus' followers. Literally in the Roman Empire. The very empire that executed Jesus, that's exactly where they shine the light. They did not flee Rome. Man, we gotta get out of Rome. You know, the schools here, their scores are a little low. We gotta get out of Rome. You know, Rome, man, it's expensive in Rome. We gotta get out to the suburbs. You know, Rome, you know, man, Rome, Rome's crazy. No, they didn't get out of Rome for better schools, bigger suburbs, or booming sanctuaries. No, they moved on mission as a faithful presence marked by good works while sharing the gospel. That was what it was to share the light, to spread the light. They not only outlived the Roman empire, but they also, speaking of Rona, they survived all kinds of Ronas, the Church of Jesus Christ, in the first centuries of the church. In fact, if you wanna study this, if you really wanna geek out on this, write down this name, Dr. Kyle Harper. He's a professor at the University of Oklahoma, fantastic scholar, and he's researched extensively ancient histories around pandemics in Rome. He's writing not as a, as a Christian scholar, he's just a professor at a secular university, and his specialty is on pandemics in the ancient world through where Christ came and where the church was born. And so in his writings, you'll, you'll, you'll find some little nuggets in there. He ties the fall of Rome, not just to crazy Caesars and corruption, but actually to natural disasters and diseases from pandemics. He wrote, he wrote a nice little book. It's called The Fate of Rome. It's published by Princeton University Press. You can pick it up on your Kindle for not that much. Those of you who are into history, you know, check it out. But let me quickly tell you what, what he discovers. He shows that the Romans actually blamed pandemics they blamed the, Roma, the Rona of their era on Christians, and they said, we got this Rona going on in Rome because these Christians won't sacrifice to our gods. The Romans were pagans, they were polytheists, they had tons of gods, they had gods everywhere. They did all sorts of kinky stuff, sex cults, weird stuff, there's kids here, I won't get into it, but they said, we got these pandemics because these Christians won't sacrifice to our pagan gods. He documents how they would blame shift that But he documents how the church responded to that. The church responded not the way that I see many believers who have responded. The church responds by turning the other cheek, loving and bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in that context, just like her Lord did when he sat silent and suffered under the hands of Rome. The church grew during the pandemic. The church outlived the plagues and the pagans, outlived them all. You know, one plague in particular is worth mentioning. It is known as the Plague of Cyprian. You could Google this, the Plague of Cyprian. It took place in the 200s. It lasted over a dozen years you think 2020 was tough or whatever, just imagine Rona going on for over 20 years, from 249 to 262 approximately. Much could be said about the Plague of Cyprian, but a point that I want to make here, and for sake of time, the Plague of Cyprian is named after Cyprian, and Cyprian was an African Christian who was a pastor in Carthage. The Plague is named after a Christian pastor. Can you imagine if the Rona was named Pastor Matt, (laughs) Pastor Matt Rona or whatever? You go, what? Why did they name it after him? They named it after him because the most extant literature that we have from the ancient world actually comes from Pastor Cyprian from Africa. And he documents for us the plague and he writes about the plague and he talks about how the church suffered and how the state persecuted the church and how the state would kill saints and how the, how the plagues came, but none of it could stop the shining. You can't stop a city on the hill. You can't stop this light, John 1, this light that has come into the world. In the face of pain and politics, the church persisted. There in Africa, Cyprian, all the way through Rome, into Asia, all the way to the Americas, and here we are today. Cyprian is dead, but the church is not dead. And saints after him, they gave their lives as martyrs through human history. They faced, this is the next point on your outline, the pain in the politics. They faced the pain in the politics. Cyprian was following the lead of the Lord. And before the Lord we have as John is going to tell us about. Draw your eyes at verse 6. Now John who is writing is not the same as the John that he's going to speak about. Namely John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Draw your eyes at chapter 1 verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. We are introduced here to the one that the Hebrews knew as Yohanan. Iwanu tu baptistu, that is John the baptizer, John the Baptist, he was called by God to take a stand against the state powers that were corrupting the people for their faith and their way of life. That said, more than uh, a standing in in, in the face of state powers, John was called to proclaim the justice of God's wrath against sinners. John the baptizer was a fire and brimstone preacher, we would say, Ironically, for a fire and brimstone preacher, ironically, he actually preaches in water. He talks about fire, but he actually preaches in water. He preached in water, and water was a symbol of cleansing. You better get cleansed by these waters lest you get the fire. So those kind of fit together. And of all places where the waters that he would be, he was in the Jordan. The Jordan was a place that was uh, used for conversion. Gentiles who were outside the promises of God would go to the Jordan River to be washed to go through mikvah, or as we say baptism, to mark themselves as belongers in the community of God. By baptizing the Jewish John, by baptizing Jewish people in the Jordan, John was making a political statement. He was treating citizens like foreigners. And we have all sorts of debates in our culture around citizens and foreigners and borders and immigration and the rest. Those are hot button issues today. They were hot button issues then. And John took that hot button issue and used it a part of the symbol Of conversion. You come and you acknowledge that you are an outsider, you are a foreigner, you are an immigrant, you are an alien, you are outside of the promises. Within you is death. You cannot save yourself. You are outside. Come to the River Jordan. Come be washed. Come be set free. Come receive faith. And in doing this, John wasn't just bringing a spiritual message, but he was doing it in a way that, as I said, he confronted the powers of the day. Draw your eyes to the text, verse 7. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not, verse 8, the light, but he came to testify about the light. The light that came to shine in the darkness. The darkness of sin in the human heart. The darkness of sin in the social order, as I was talking about. It, it's from within and it's from without. It's vertical as we stand before God and horizontal. It, it moves. And, 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 and John is confronting this. And this is, this is where Jesus steps on scene. This is where the historical Jesus begins his ministry. As John is confronting the corrupt political powers, as John is confronting the, the panic and the politics and the pain of his day, specifically the Herods. You've heard about the Herodian dynasty, King Herod? Recall that King Herod slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem to try to snuff out Jesus? The world that Christmas comes into, the world that Jesus is born to is a world with corrupt political powers that are willing to kill babies to try and stop Jesus. That was Herod the Great. He died in 4 BC. His throne came to an end and so did his politics. But his children and his children's children tried to keep his politics alive. One of them, Archelaus, became the next Herod. He died in 6 AD. Another one bites the dust. And then came another Herod, Herod Antipas, who ruled during the ministry of Jesus and John. Herod Antipas is going on here with John 1 in front of you. And John confronts him in the rivers of the Jordan. John called King Herod Antipas and his cronies in Luke chapter 3, verse 7, a generation of vipers. In Luke chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus called Herod Antipas an unclean animal, specifically a fox. John had such a following that people were coming to him in the Jordan. And they said in Luke chapter 3, verse 10, what shall we do? John was pulling them away from the state powers. They were looking to John for direction. Antipas, the state power, was threatened by John. John was exposing him. John politically attacked him. He attacked Herod Antipas for divorcing his wife and marrying his sister-in-law specifically. Understand that this was not just immoral according to the law of God in terms of sexual deviance, but John was also exposing the politics of it because that marriage was a political arrangement. Herod divorced his first wife, which was a political marriage, to marry his brother's wife, which was another political marriage. And those political marriages were bringing all sorts of geopolitical tensions into the world of the Jews and Gentiles in Rome. And John comes out and he starts calling it to task. That's sexually sinful. That's politically crazy. And Herod had enough of it, so he threw John in jail. Imagine that in contemporary terms. Throwing a preacher in jail. Imagine if Biden threw Wayne Grudem in jail because Wayne Grudem didn't support Biden. Imagine if Trump threw John Piper in jail because John Piper was critical of of Trump. Imagine preachers getting thrown in jail. First century Rome was the Wild West. It was gangster. The politicians were thugs. And speaking of the Herods, they were a whole bunch of thugs. Such a thug that when he died, Herod knew that the people would not mourn. And so Herod, the great Herod, he actually ordered when he died for his soldiers to publicly kill the heroes in the community. So that from the city there would be sounds of wailing crying out when Herod died. So he told his soldiers, I'm, I'm finna die. Go kill all the good people so that when I die you'll hear, oh, coming out of the city. What a wicked man. What a tyrant. The Roman Emperor Augustus once joked that it is better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Keep in mind that for Jewish people, pigs were unclean. Herod was savage. The Herodian dynasty was dark. And John, in John 1, he's not shying away from it. And he actually dies for it. John was killed for this. He was killed not for his theology, per se, but for his boldness in confronting political powers. He stood against the state. He spoke against its immorality. John was arrested. He was thrown in jail. He was a political prisoner, John the Baptizer. And while he was in jail, the, the, the Herodian family and friends were having a drunken Hugh Hefner style party up in his castle, and Herod's wife got her daughter, Herod's niece, this is how weird it is, to dance promiscuously before him and seduce him to grant a wish from the king, and, sh- and she and her mother literally had John beheaded. That was the wish that they wanted. They sawed his head off. They sawed his head off. Again, imagine Biden sawing off Grudem's head or Trump sawing off John Piper's head or whatever. You think about John getting his head sawed off, this prophetic voice down by the River Jordan and giving his life in order to speak against the injustices of the society of his day and to call sinners to repent. Think about that. And I think about our contemporary society and how we continue to kill prophets of our day. On a day such as this, I am mindful of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. I'm mindful of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. as he stood against uh, the powers of his day, powers that still need to be stood against, and I'm mindful of him because you know what, you know what, you know what today is? Today, today, this morning, today. This is the 53rd anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in Tennessee. April the 4th, 1968. He was assassinated today. That was, that was 53 years ago. And in the aftermath, riots broke out across the nation. Some of the most massive and bloodiest riots of the nation broke out after that. Aren't we glad that we're done rioting? No, we're still doing it. Why are we still doing it? Because we're this side of paradise. The problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. And so everywhere we go, we divide, we fight, we attack, we burn, we riot, we protest. John had a political message, but his political message wasn't politics. It wasn't a social justice gospel. His gospel was centered on Jesus the Christ. And the implications of the identity of the Christ theologically threatened people socially, personally, governmentally. There's a reason why Herod the Great wanted to kill the baby Jesus. There's a reason why Herod Antipas wanted John's head. There's a reason why Herod became buddies with Pontius Pilate in the death of Jesus. There's a reason why Herod the, uh, Agrippa the One, the grandson of, the great, of Herod the Great, actually throws Peter in prison in Acts chapter 12. These are dark forces. Politics to suppress prophetic witness, and more personally, to stop the true light. But you can't stop the light from shining. Jesus is the light who has come into the world. Jesus is the true king. They didn't want to bow down to the true king, and of course we can. If we're honest, we can relate. Matt Jones's kingdom isn't that big. I have a modest little kingdom. But I tell you what, I have a hard time letting go of my rule. I have a hard time letting go of my stuff. I have a hard time giving up the right to be right. I like my kingdom. I like being in control. Rather than repenting, I like rationalizing. And when you're called to task for something that you have done, what do we do? do? What is our default? We blame shift. Oh, we lash out. It was your fault. You said this. You did this. I saw you. You did this. You did this. Instead of throwing ourselves at the mercy of God, what do we do? We resist. We fight. Sin enslaves us in our respective kingdoms. It's easy to look at Herod. It's easy to watch the news and look at those guys on that side and what they're doing. But the gospel turns it to look at ourselves. And the implications of the phenomenon is that the message of God confronts us all. And the message of God, when it confronts us, it exposes sin's stubbornness within us. Herod didn't want to repent. He had earthly power, and he used his power to snuff out the Savior. Little did Herod know that what he was doing in snuffing out the Savior was providing redemption for the people of God. Jesus wasn't dying as a mere martyr the way prophets in days of old die as martyrs. He was dying to pay for our sin. These things took place, draw your eyes to the text in verse 28, in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming up. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came not to die as a martyr. He came to die as a lamb. He came to die as a lamb. John said, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That imagery is twofold. It, it, it's soteriological, it's sacrifice, a lamb gives its life and as a symbol for the place of the guilty. It's soteriological, it's also eschatological, we read in ancient Jewish texts, we think of the book of Revelation for example, where the lamb comes and overthrows the beasts and the powers of darkness. We, we, we look at this, we see this tension, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about all of these things because I think that it's important for us on a day like this where we think about the resurrection, that you don't just spiritualize the resurrection or turn it into some sort of a, a, a symbol or, 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 or you know, a metaphor for something else. The resurrection took place in a context of politics and panic and pain. And we are situated in such a time as this to realize and to appreciate these things because we're feeling those powers alive and, and, and well among us. We're, we're, we're seeing, look, those issues from the first century are still with us. And we're seeing churches in the last couple of years. I'm, I'm so deeply concerned by what I'm seeing with churches over the last couple of years that have been straying in this regard. They've, they've fallen into the powers. And you come on a Sunday morning and you don't hear about the hope that we have in Christ. Instead, you hear pastors pontificating about their, their, their positions with regard to events in the evening news. I don't go to church to hear a man talk about the evening news. I go to church to hear a man talk about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I tell you what, I was watching the news this week and it's raging. There's a man who drove into the Capitol and busted a knife out and got shot up and killed a police officer. There's the, 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 the George Floyd trial, the Chauvin trial that is taking place. I've been watching it all week. It's moments where I want to cry, moments where I find myself frustrated, I find myself angry, I'm so angry at our media. Our media spins, spins the loss of life for ratings. Our media is as guilty to me as those people who are handing out bricks and Molotov cocktails at protests to turn them into riots. The pursuit of truth and justice and healing for our nation with a wicked past of racism and current complexities and pain. You watch the way our media spins it in order to divide us. Racial tensions are high. I Personally, I've shared with you about my own close friend who was killed by a police officer uh, just a few months back. And even now, I'm watching news of my friend in the news and new dash cams and new data coming out. And I, I, I'm watching the media and how the media spins. The death of a man I loved and a man I knew. You know, it's almost like someone's getting paid to make people hate each other. Oh, wait a second, they are getting paid. So no wonder people are fighting over racialization and voting in Georgia this week. One side of the media says this, one side of the media says that, one side says they can't hand out water, the other side says this, and the MLB is moving a game over it, and people are canceling each other over it, and people are fighting over vaccines, and people are fighting over masks still, as if they're not tired of that, they're still fighting over it. And exasperated people are, are, are trapped inside of echo chambers and algorithms that keep reinforcing their views and militarizing them so that people are ripping one another apart. And we are prey for it because we are a culture that stopped studying logic and critical thinking some time ago. We are a, a culture that gives everyone a trophy so everyone's a winner and everyone has a right to their opinion and whatever. And so people pontificate about epidemiology and policing and guns and jurisprudence and more. And all the while, people make money off of getting us to attack each other and rip one, apart, one another apart, and in the darkness, the devil grins. And you know what? There are many who want to come to church, and they want to hear about that. They, they, want to, they want to hear about that. They come to church, they want to hear about it. In particular, they want to hear about it not the way that I'm doing it right now. They want a preacher to land on a side. They want that preacher to go hard on it. They, 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 wa- they want to they hear him say, this is what's going on. They want to you know, hear him preach the evening news. They want to hear that. Meanwhile, they would tolerate preachers who would not tell you the good news. They would tolerate preachers who never bring up the Trinity, wrath, sin, hell, the exclusive bloody cross of Christ. They'd be happy if you get on their political soapbox. They'd be happy if you go cultural warrior and point out everything that's going wrong in the world. They'd be happy if you'd talk about little Nas and his satanic little Nikes, and that little drop of blood in the red dye that was used in those Nikes. But they take no issue if the preacher doesn't bring up not the drop of blood, but the bloody cross of Calvary that was splattered everywhere for sinners. Talk about Calvary. Yeah, 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 we know that. We know know about Calvary. We know, yeah, he died. But what about what's going on with Coca-Cola? What about what's going on with Trump? What about what's going on with Biden? What about what's going on with, and the list goes on and on and on. And I tell you what, I'm worried way less about those little Nas shoes. I'm worried way less about what private companies are doing or shady politicians are doing or ignorant folks who want to try and take the guns out of my house are doing or what racist people are doing. I'm worried way less about those people. I'm worried about them, but I'm worried way less about them than I am compared to the church of Jesus Christ and what I've seen come out in the last few years. I'm worried about pastors around the nation that I know who are talking to me, who are calling me. I'm worried about these Barna reports that have said all the people that have unplugged from churches and left churches and pastors that are giving up who are discouraged and quitting. It it worries me. It worries me that I see people with far more energy over tribes, far more energy to pick up fists Instead of taking that energy and turning the other cheek and raising their hands from fists into open palms to give compassion to the lost. Oh, to be sure there's a time to make a fist. To be sure there's a time to scrap fist a cup. To be sure the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ speaks to these issues. So before i missed heard, let me tell you, the gospel speaks to all of these things and more. See John, see how John preached this. And what all this has to do with Resurrection Sunday is again to remind us the resurrection is not a metaphor. The resurrection is a reality that comes into a world that is just like ours. If we think Bidens and Trumps and these guys and those guys have anything on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herods and the so on and so forth, we have not studied our history. And this is the world into which passion comes. The last points, we're going to land quickly. All of this was a setup to talk about passion and passing. Move from the opening of the Gospel of John to the 19th chapter. I promise we're going to move fast, so quickly turn. We see Pontius Pilate, the politician. He is the one before whom the Lord Jesus will give his life. He will pass. We see Jesus in his passion. He's suffering. The word passion is a word that means suffering. We read in John chapter 19, About how, draw your eyes at verse 12, how Pilate was making efforts to release him. But how the people were crying out, you're not a friend of Caesar. Look, John 19, verse 12, you're not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. You see, Jesus' claim to be the Christ was understood not just spiritually. Oh yeah, you're the Christ. It was understood politically. You are an opponent of Caesar. You are an opponent of the state. True allegiance to Jesus will put you at odds with state powers. We live in a moment where people and churches have a greater allegiance to a donkey or an elephant than they do their local church, and more importantly than to Jesus himself. And the radical call to Jesus is to find one's identity in him and in his people, even over your family. You can't follow me unless you're willing to say I'm more important than your family, Jesus said. You can't follow me unless you're willing to put down your nets, you fishermen, to say I'm more important than your vocation, more important than your family, more important than your politics, more important than it all. While the government may have deemed the church as non-essential in 2020, we are surely and truly essential. Our identity is found in this. Look around. This is our identity, saints. And we represent the physical representation of the risen Lord. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. And because of this, the world hates you. You see, friendship with worldly powers will bring enmity with God. Look at what the powers did to Jesus. John 19, verse 18, They crucified him. And they crucified him next to who, verse 18? Two other men on the either side of Jesus, and we read in the, in the historical accounts that they executed him like a common thief next to thieves. Next, the insurrectionists, enemies of the state. Jesus was crucified as an enemy of the state. Jesus was said, if you're a friend of him, you're not a friend of Caesar. They crucified him as an enemy of the state. They put thorns on his head and mocked him as though he were a king. In verse 19, they put a sign on the cross as though he was a king. And that sign on the cross starts pulling people and they start fighting. You read in the account, and then some thugs come and they start gambling for his his clothes. And then in verse 30, look at the text, verse 30, Jesus cries out and he says, it is finished. He doesn't say, I'm done with y'all. I'm finished. I'm done. Tap out. No, he says, it is finished. It is finished. That's important. It. The passion is complete. The passion, it is done. The payment for sin is done. We've rebelled against the Creator. The Creator is the one who gives life. The consequence of rebelling against the Creator is the taking back of life. The cosmos itself is running out of usable energy. It's in a state of death. 10 out of 10 people die. Sin within, sin without, brokenness in relationships, brokenness in our bodies, all of it. He dies in place of that. It's finished. I died for you. It's finished. I paid the payment. It's finished. The debt that you owed that you could not pay, I paid it for you. And this leads to the last point. In this payment, there is peace and power. So this brings us to resurrection. John 19, verse 31, through chapter 20, verse 31, Jesus gives his people peace. Notice that the text begins. Draw your eyes at the text. It says, on the first day of the week. He died on a Friday. Now it is a Sunday. And as he has has moved from the empty tomb, and he comes back to life, what does the Savior do? He runs to his people. The ones to whom he will give his light to, to shine into the world, he runs from them. His body comes back to life. He's resurrected and he, and he, and he gets out of that tomb and he goes on the run. i got to find my people. i got to tell them of my peace. We read, draw your eyes at the text, verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came, and he stood in their midst, and he said what? Peace be with you. And he, and he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Spirit. The Spirit will bring them power. The resurrection brings peace and power. There is, there is peace, he is, he is risen, he's risen indeed. There's power, he is risen, he is risen indeed. It's not a metaphor, it's not abstract. It happened in history. It was political, it was social, it was personal, it was soteriological. It is eschatological, he's going to come back. And all of that is a power that carries us, that gives us new birth and new life. Thomas is there, and we read, draw your eyes to the text in verse 27. Thomas is like, man, I don't know what's going on here. And Jesus says, verse 27, chapter 20, John, reach with your finger, see my hands, put your hand on my side. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me and you have believed, blessed are those who do not see and yet believed. That is us, brothers and sisters. We weren't there in the first century, but we believe. And can I say... Contrary to conventional wisdom that seeing is believing in the way that Thomas encountered the Lord, I would submit to you that believing is seeing. And I would submit to you that what stands in our way of believing is the very thing that I've been talking to you about. It's our sin. It's our sin. And I stand in the testimony of John who stood in the River Jordan and now I stand on this sand in 90293 in this corner of Los Angeles and I say to you, he has come. Repent. Repent. The king has come. He took on flesh. Touch my side, touch my hand. Brothers and sisters, let's take the communion cup. Let's open the top, the flesh that Thomas touched, the hands that Thomas touched, this this symbol of the flesh that we hold in our hands. It hung on the cross, it bled out, and it died. What a serious image, a man dying. And he was dying a death that he did not deserve. And he was doing that in our place. I made mention of the, uh, you know, the thing that happened at the Capitol this week. There was an officer that died. An officer gave his life. Gave his life. And we watch that. What do we say to that officer? We say, wow, he gave his life to, you know, to serve the nation. He gave his life. What, an, what, a, what a hero. He gave his life. And we look at the cross and we say, what a hero. He gave his life. But here's the thing, remember who's hanging on the cross. It's not a mortal man, it's eternal God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. That officer gave his life and he died and we say that's heroic, but the one who hangs on the cross is God, that's God, that's the Creator who hangs. The one who made the world, who brought it into existence. The eternal Son, one with the Father and the Spirit, He took on flesh. Now God can't die, so we don't say God died. Jesus became, Jesus is the Son, the Son became a man, His human body dies, and his human soul, to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord, goes, goes into the heavens, and behold, on Sunday comes, and that body comes back to life. You ever, you ever, you ever been concussed, you ever been knocked out and come to? <gasps> Maybe some of you this morning when the alarm clock went off, <gasps> you know, you come to, wait, where am I? What's going on? That dead body in that, in that tomb came back to life. Ten out of ten people die. Oh, wait, there was one who, who's risen from the dead, and there's one who gives his life, and we celebrate him, and we eat, and we think the immaterial God took on matter. The immaterial God took on a body with blood. When he resurrected, when he resurrected, that body that bled out all of a sudden had a pumping heart and veins. All of a sudden, air entered those lungs. All of a sudden, those crusted eyes opened. All of a sudden, the linens that wrapped him were ripped apart, and he, he went out of that tomb. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, While we were sinners, he reconciled us through the death of his Son, You know, the Christian message, the biblical story, is the only story where the hero dies for the villain. The only story where the hero dies for the villain. In fact, it doesn't stop there. The hero not only dies for the villain, but then he makes the villain his friend. He makes the villain his brother. He takes the villain home to his father and makes him a child of God. What I was talking about in the beginning, new birth, we need to be born again. As children of God we are saved to boast in the Son who has made us sons of his fathers. In the incarnation, through the salvation of the Son, he took on blood so that by his blood we could be cleansed. Let us drink the cup and give thanks to him. I shared with you my concern that believers in our culture are distracted 2019, 2020 has made it clear to me as a pastor watching believers fret over pandemic, protests, riots, racism, hatred, and all. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when it's dark in the darkness. It's our job to go into the darkness. Don't be mad at the darkness. Don't resent the darkness. Don't respond to the panic and the pain. Don't, don't, don't let the powers that are making money off dividing us suck you in. We are, Delray Church, the city on a hill. Flashlights don't get mad about shining. That's what they're designed to do. Flashlights don't empty out their batteries when it gets dark. We're saved to shine. In our passage, that's what John did, John 1-7. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, John 1:8. He came to testify about the light. I'm reminded that the moon gets its light from the sun. In the same way that the sun illuminates the earth, the moon reflects the sun's light, making it appear bright as the sky reflects. This is what we're called to do. We are we're called to reflect the sun, the S-O-N, to reflect his message by sharing it with our life and living it in the power of the resurrection. Which will place us at odds with the power of our day. Which will, will, will make us peacekeepers as the powers divide people. You know scientists say that the moon only reflects 3 to 12% of the sunlight from the sun that hits it. Imagine how brighter the moon could be. Imagine how brighter we could be. So let us come in repentance this day. Let us seek the Lord for his faith and for his power this day, that we might leave here and shine for him. Let's pray, let's sing, and as we sing a couple of songs and we close our service with a word of prayer, brother and sister, in your heart, cry out to him, Lord, change me, make me like you. Make me willing to stand against the powers of the day. Lord, Lord, above all, make me see the power within me that I am powerless over, the power of sin that by your resurrection you have broken. I need you. Oh, I need you. Let's cry out to him for his mission to the ends of the earth and a mission that begins in our hearts now as we come in prayer and song. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We confess, Lord, that we get far more energized off the evening news than we do the good news. We get far more worked up over earthly enemies, over things that five years from now will not matter at all. Then we get worked up over the reality that we were once enemies of you. May we never grow tired of hearing this message. May, may we long to hear it more than anything else. May we be transformed by it, the good news, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son who was sent for us. Give us the prophetic mouthpiece of your servant, John, O God, we pray. Give us the patience and the love of your Son who you sent incarnate, O Father, we pray. Give us your Spirit afresh today to draw us that we would be like they. Lord, that we would come to you this day, and we would, we would worship and we would respond. Receive these songs of worship now. Lord, move through the truth of the lyrics as we sing them, we ask. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.